Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Second Nephi chapter 26 As part of his great final sermon, Nephi touches upon issues that he witnessed and recorded in his great vision in 1 Nephi chapters 11 through 14. Here, in the spirit of prophecy, he expands upon several of the things that he saw there, describing the destruction of the wicked in the last days, the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and the way in which it will speak as a voice from the dust. He speaks of the weakened state of the Nephites and the Lamanites in their very final generations. He will explain, however, in verse 15, that God shall have camped against them round about and laid a siege. In other words, God is ready to save them when they are ready to be saved. And verse 15 says that all those who have dwindled in unbelief shall not be forgotten. This is the context, then, when he describes the voice that will speak to these people from out of the ground, which will have a familiar spirit. While the Gentiles and their coming to this promised land will be the means by which this word is brought to these remnants of Lehi's seed, they will also be the way in which Lehi's seed is smitten. Nephi ends the chapter by discussing the Lord's great willingness to extend the saving power of his atonement to all those who would receive it. This invitation, as Nephi makes clear in verse 25, is to all the ends of the earth, who can buy this saving power uh, without money and without price. The first section of this chapter, verses 1 through 8, prophesied the arrival of the Savior to his seed in the Americas. All of what Nephi writes here forecasts what is to come in Third Nephi and can be confirmed in that record. The next section is where Nephi prophesies that the resurrected Lord will visit his disciples, saying in verse 9 that the Son of Righteousness shall appear unto them, and he shall heal them. This extends through verse 13. Nephi then moves into a discussion of the last days, saying in verse 14, But behold, I prophesy unto you concerning the last days. He will talk about the emergence of the scriptural record from the ground, and that it will appear as a voice from the dust. We will learn much about his use of the term familiar spirit. Then, as mentioned earlier, Nephi will discuss the way in which the Gentiles will smite the seed of Lehi. However, as we will discover, the Gentiles in so doing are a tool for the Lord in this instance. But this does not mean that they are aligned with the Lord's heart and mind in this matter, very similar to something we read in Isaiah chapter 10 with reference to the king of Assyria, and we'll come back to that. We find that the Gentiles and their society is racked with problems. Uh, Many churches, and they put down the miracles of God, and these churches grind upon the face of the poor, and that these churches are infected with what Nephi calls in verse 22, secret combinations. Although the great and abominable church is not mentioned in this passage, it does hearken to that aspect of Nephi's earlier vision as well. And he contrasts that with the motives of the Lord himself in verse 23, saying that the Lord God worketh not in darkness, suggesting that this church of the Gentiles that was just described is not the perfect mechanism for the workings of the Lord, 
Then he goes on to explain that this is because the Lord doesn't do anything, save it be for the benefit of the world, in verse 24. And in verse 25, we see that his invitation is open to all, and this tone continues through verse 28, and then is revisited at the very last verse of this chapter, in telling us after discussing and defining the evils of priestcrafts, that all are invited to come unto God and partake of his goodness, and that he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, all are alike unto God. So we'll return to that verse, of course, and read it in its entirety with some accompanying commentary. Now back to the beginning of this chapter, which is of great interest for us to read before we come to this account in Third Nephi, so that we can see that the things that Mormon described had already been seen and described by prophets long before the Savior ever came Verse 1, And after Christ shall have risen from the dead, he shall show himself unto you, my children. Now remember here that Nephi is following up on his prophecy from the previous chapter that Christ would rise from the dead with healing in his wings. Now again he's saying, After Christ shall have risen from the dead, he shall show himself unto you, my children, and my beloved brethren, and the words which he shall speak unto you shall be the law which ye shall do. Brent Gardner said Nephi is not only predicting Christ's appearance to the Nephites, but notes that the law that governs their lives will change. The Nephites will keep the law of Moses until that time. Nephi therefore explains clearly not only the person of the Christ, but also the meaning of Christ in fulfilling the law of Moses. He looks forward to the day when the Messiah will provide a new law. It is interesting that it will be the law which ye shall do. Nephi expects that one must act according to the law. Now his people act under and according to the law of Moses. After the Messiah comes, they will act under and according to Christ's law. Now this, of course, um, corresponds very well with the final verse that we read at the end of 2 Nephi chapter 5, where Nephi makes it clear that it is still his task and the task of his people to live the law of Moses. Verse 2, For behold, I say unto you, that I have beheld that many generations shall pass away, and there shall be great wars and contentions among my people. And after the Messiah shall come, there shall be signs given unto my people of his birth, and also of his death and resurrection. And great and terrible shall that day be unto the wicked, for they shall perish. And they perish because they cast out the prophets and the saints and stone them and slay them, Wherefore, the cry of the blood of the saints shall ascend up to God from the ground against them. So great and terrible is the term that Nephi uses here, and it answers the question that that might be asked, who is uh, the great and terrible day great and terrible for? Well, it is great and terrible for the wicked. Now verse 4, Wherefore, all those who are proud and that do wickedly The day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, for they shall be as stubble. This should make us think of the end of the book of Malachi. And we can also notice this phrase, the cry of the blood of the saints, and how it is that it would ascend up to God from the ground against them. This is the first of two times in this chapter that we will talk in this way about the voices of those who have gone before arising from the ground here and later from the dust. Monty S. Nyman said, When a people cast out and slay the prophets and the saints, that people shall perish. Figuratively, Nephi speaks of the blood of the ground crying out and ascending to God against them. In the same context and in words similar to a passage in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, Nephi speaks of the proud and those who do wickedly being burned in a day that would come. The doctrine spoken of is the cleansing of the earth by fire at the second coming of the Lord. This is a statement by the prophet Joseph Smith. We need not doubt the wisdom and intelligence of the great Jehovah. He will award judgment to mercy, he will award judgment or mercy to all nations according to their several deserts. Their means of obtaining intelligence the laws by which they are governed, the facilities afforded them of obtaining correct information, 
and his inscrutable designs in relation to the human family, and when the designs of God shall be made manifest and the curtain of futility be withdrawn, we shall all of us eventually have to confess that the judge of the earth has done right. Now Nephi begins a passage in verses 5 through 8 that certainly states a general principle about the state of the wicked at the presence of the coming of the Lord, but this can also be interpreted very directly as a prophecy of what will happen that we will read later in Third Nephi. So verse 5, And they that kill the prophets and the saints, the depths of the earth shall swallow them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and mountains shall cover them, and whirlwinds shall carry them away, and buildings shall fall upon them, and crush them to pieces, and grind them to powder. This is of great interest in light of what we've read previously, the idea that mountains shall cover them, because we know that this is the wish of those who don't want to stand before the Lord in their shame. There are other notable accounts of the earth swallowing up the wicked. Uh, It is referenced in the book of Revelation, and there's also an incident in Genesis uh, by a man named Kor. Verse 6, And they shall be visited with thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and all manner of destructions, for the fire of the anger of the Lord shall be kindled against them. And they shall be as stubble, and the day that cometh shall consume them, saith the Lord of hosts. O the pain and the anguish of my soul for the loss of the slain of my people! For I, Nephi, have seen it, and it well nigh consumeth me before the presence of the Lord. But I must cry unto my God, Thy ways are just. But behold, the righteous that hearken unto the words of the prophets and destroy them not, but look forward unto Christ with steadfastness for the signs which are given, notwithstanding all persecutions. Behold, they are they which shall not perish. So we've learned earlier in verse 3 that the coming of the Lord will be great and terrible for the wicked. And here is an illustration of how that great and terrible time looks. Then we discover that it will not be ultimately great and terrible. In verse 8, for those who look forward with Christ with steadfastness for the signs which are given. Now, this is very instructive to us, and we also find that they look forward for those signs, notwithstanding all persecution. All of this is modeled for us, particularly in Third Nephi chapter 1, when there's a day that's set aside that the unbelievers will slay the believers. And the believers in that instance are those who were looking steadfastly for the signs that Samuel the Lamanite told them about. This lament of Nephi's in verse 7 reminds us of the way that he undoubtedly felt after his great vision when he saw the loss and the slain of his people. Here he is focusing in on this specific incident where he sees the loss and slain of his people prior to the coming of the Lord. And we can see, as has been pointed out at other um, audio segments that I've pointed out, that uh, Nephi's visit to the visionary realm and his prophetic view of things wasn't just cerebral, but there was a difficult and heavy emotional component that came with it as well. Robert J. Matthews offers this commentary. Nephi observed that the righteous who hearkened unto the words of the prophets would not be destroyed. These observations by Nephi deal with an interesting spiritual law regulating this mortal earth, showing that the behavior of human beings can affect and influence the so-called natural phenomena. The language of the scriptures also suggests that God uses the natural occurrences to punish or at times to reward his children. Nephi did not state categorically that God himself would cause the natural calamities such as earthquakes, floods, and whirlwinds for the express purpose of slaying the wicked, but he definitely implied it and it is also inherent in the message of his prophecy. For example, in 2 Nephi 26, verse 6, he identified the thunderings, lightnings, and earthquakes as the fire of the anger of the Lord against the wicked. And in verse 7, Nephi lamented in pain and anguish that his people were so thoroughly destroyed, but he acknowledged that God's ways are just. Such expressions show that Nephi viewed these natural occurrences as God-sent, These expressions cannot simply be a manner of speaking or a literary device, for they are basic not only to Nephi's warning, 
but also to the prophecy of Zenos, cited in 1 Nephi chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, and the words of the Lord in 3 Nephi chapters 9 through 10, wherein the literal fulfillment of these prophecies is reported, and the voice of the Lord proclaims that it is he himself who has sent the destructions in consequence of the wickedness of the people. That is a very thought-provoking piece of commentary by Brother Matthews. Now in verse 9, the image of the Savior appearing comes next, just as it does in Third Nephi. But the Son of Righteousness shall appear unto them. And we might remember earlier that this sounded like Malachi, and that does too when he says Son of Righteousness. And he shall heal them. Here it does not use the phrase heal with healing in their wings, in his wings, but we did just read that in the previous chapter. And they shall have peace with him until three generations shall have passed away, and many of the fourth generation shall have passed away in righteousness. So Nephi is not recounting or prophesying of the things that the Savior did in his ministry or the sequence of events that we read of in Third Nephi once he appears, but he moves right to the welfare of his posterity. That is his focus in this chapter. And when these things have passed away, a speedy destruction cometh unto my people. For notwithstanding the pains of my soul, I have seen it. Wherefore I know that it shall come to pass. And they sell themselves for naught. For for the reward of their pride and their foolishness, they shall reap destruction. For because they yield unto the devil and choose works of darkness rather than light, therefore they must go down to hell. To this phrase, sell themselves as not, McConkie and Millet said, What shall a man or a woman give in exchange for their souls? Of what value is a divine birthright? And by the way, that question comes out of Matthew chapter 16. Of what value is a divine birthright? Thinking there of Esau. Is anything which may be purchased or extorted in this fallen sphere worth eternal life? Are fame, wealth, title, or power worth the bartering of one's values? Now verse 11, where an important principle is taught about the Spirit of the Lord. For the Spirit of the Lord will not always strive with man. And when the Spirit ceaseth to strive with man, then cometh speedy destruction, and this grieveth my soul. First to the idea that the Spirit does not always strive with man. Joseph B. Worthlin taught... As with all gifts, the gift of the Holy Ghost must be received and accepted to be enjoyed. When priesthood hands were laid upon your head to confirm you a member of the church, you heard the words, Receive the Holy Ghost. This did not mean that the Holy Ghost unconditionally became your constant companion. Scriptures warn us that the Spirit of the Lord will not always strive with man. When we are confirmed, we are given the right to the companionship of the Holy Ghost but it is a right that we must continue to earn through obedience and worthiness. We cannot take this gift for granted. Elder Worthlin's words are very interesting for us because we could guess from this verse, verse 11, that the context of Nephi's comment is simply that the Spirit collectively can be taken away from a society that is no longer worthy of it. But Elder Worthlin is telling us here that this gift of the Holy Ghost that baptized and confirmed members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have, has to regularly be maintained through righteousness and obedience and worthiness, a gift, as he says, to never be taken for granted. Now to this second statement in verse 11 about the destruction that comes. When the Spirit ceaseth striving with man. And here's something that's very enlightening and very alarming that President Harold B. Lee said, One of the most tragic experiences that can come to individuals is to have the Lord withdraw His Spirit from us. And when He speaks of His Spirit, it isn't just the Holy Ghost, because many of those spoken of by the prophets had not received the gift of the Holy Ghost. This Spirit to which I refer is the light of Christ. When withdrawn, it becomes difficult for us to pray, to have direction and guidance, and to withstand evil. I think in our fallen world, we're always happy to mingle with saints 
who are similarly blessed with the gift of the Holy Ghost and who profess a belief in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ and who live by those beliefs. But a second layer of comfort for us is that there are good people the world over that are enlightened through and by the light of Christ. It uh, is an assault to this sense of security, I think, to consider that there are some uh, that can have even the light of Christ withdrawn from them. Here's a lament from President Boyd K. Packer. The world is spiraling downward at an ever-quickening pace. I am sorry to tell you that it will not get better. I know of nothing in the history of the church or in the history of the world to compare with our present circumstances. Nothing happened in Sodom and Gomorrah which exceeds in wickedness and depravity that surrounds us now. At Sodom and Gomorrah, these things were localized. Now they are spread across the world, and they are among us. Now Nephi, in verse 12, will return to the idea that Jesus the Christ, and he will be named again in this verse, will be believed by the Jews, will be accepted by the Jews. Verse 12, And as I spake concerning the convincing of the Jews that Jesus is the very Christ, it must needs be that the Gentiles be convinced also that Jesus is the Christ, the eternal God. Michael Wilcox has written, Nephi's own words supply the beginnings of an answer. They must be convinced not only of Christ's messiahship, but that he is, one, the eternal God, two, that he manifests himself to all, which is every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, who believe in him by the power of the Holy Ghost, and three, that he manifests himself by mighty miracles, signs, and wonders. Then continuing, with the Jews and the Gentiles being convinced that Jesus is the Christ, Nephi says in verse 13, and that he manifest himself unto all those who believe in him by the power of the Holy Ghost. Yea, unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, working mighty miracles, signs, and wonders among the children of men according to their faith. Now, after creating that hopeful and felicitous picture in those verses, Nephi returns and discusses the weakening of the Nephites and the Lamanites because of their unbelief and their lack of that faith that he has just mentioned. Verse 14, But behold, I prophesy unto you concerning the last days, concerning the days when the Lord God shall bring these things forth unto the children of men. After my seed and the seed of my brethren shall have dwindled in unbelief and shall have been smitten by the Gentiles, yea, after the Lord God shall have camped against them round about, and shall have laid siege against them with a mount, and raised forts against them. And after they shall have been brought down low in the dust, even that they are not, yet the words of the righteous shall be written, and the prayers of the faithful shall be heard, and all those who have dwindled in unbelief shall not be forgotten. This siege, this camping about that the Lord God will do, around those who have fallen, seems to be an expression of ultimate protection and redemption. It seems to be an image that says that the armies of the Lord who are charged with the spiritual gathering of Israel are waiting for the time that they can rescue those who have dwindled in unbelief. Verse 16 talks about the mechanism for that rescue. For those who shall be destroyed shall speak unto them out of the ground, and their speech shall be low out of the dust, and their voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit. For the Lord God will give unto him power, that he may whisper concerning them even as it were out of the ground, and their speech shall whisper out of the dust. There's quite a bit to consider with respect to this phrase, their speech shall whisper out of the dust. I want first to share this commentary from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. Nephi paraphrased Isaiah 29.4 to show that even though his people shall be destroyed, those who shall be destroyed shall speak unto them out of the ground, and their speech shall be low out of the dust, and their voice shall be as one that hath a familiar spirit. The original meaning of familiar spirit is a noun, meaning a spirit who prompts an individual or the spirit of a dead person. While this meaning may sound odd to us today, in the past, it commonly conveyed the sense that departed ones can have influence beyond the grave into this life. 
In that sense, the voice of Nephi's people, who have slumbered in the dust for centuries, are now whispering out of the dust through the pages of the Book of Mormon, which Joseph Smith literally took out of the ground. The Ogden and Skinner commentaries say that records of the righteous prophets were preserved, and the Nephites will yet speak to the Lamanites and Gentiles out of the ground. Their words shall have a familiar sound to them, and Joseph Smith will be given power to bring their words back out of the dust of centuries. Elder Orson Pratt testified, One of the most marvelous things connected with this prediction is that after the nation should be brought down, they should speak out of the ground. Never was a prophecy more truly fulfilled than this in the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith took that sacred history out of the ground. It is the voice of the ancient prophets of America speaking out of the ground. Their speech is low out of the dust. It speaks in a most familiar manner of the doings of bygone ages. It is the voice of those who slumber in the dust. It is the voice of prophets speaking from the dead, crying repentance in the ears of the living. In what manner could a nation, after they were brought down and destroyed, speak out of the ground? Could their dead bodies, or their dust, or their ashes speak? Verily, no, they can only speak by their writings or their books that they wrote while living. Their voice, speech, or words can only speak out of the ground or whisper out of the dust by their books or writings being discovered. These two pieces of commentary reflect two different ways, really, of interpreting the phrase familiar spirit, or a voice that has a familiar spirit. Another general way of interpreting this that falls within the the commentary that I just read is this beautiful uh, short quote from Elder David A. Bednar, where he says that youth of all ages, even infants, can and do respond to the distinctive spirit of the Book of Mormon. Children may not understand all of the words and stories, but they certainly can feel the familiar spirit. In that sense, Elder Bednar is not calling upon the original meaning of the term familiar spirit. But of course, Elder Bednar's interpretation of this is ever so valid, and it's a feeling that we all can recognize uh, because of our affinity toward the Book of Mormon and the spirit that it carries that can indeed seem familiar to children. Paul Hoskison provides us with help in understanding these two lines of interpretation of the term familiar spirit, and he says this, There are two ways to read a text, through exegesis and through eisegesis. The first means approximately reading out of the text, while the second means approximately reading into the text. Both are legitimate ways of approaching a text. Anyone who reads the scriptures will at times engage in both exegesis and eisegesis, whether knowingly or unwittingly. Therefore, the more conscientiously and consciously we engage in rigorous and careful exegesis and eisegesis, the better the chance that our reading of the scriptures will truly enlighten the mind and provide substance for the soul. I will illustrate both approaches using the term familiar spirit found in 2 Nephi 26 and 16, Isaiah chapter 29 verse 4, and 1 Samuel 28. First, an example of the eisegetical approach. The word familiar has various meanings in English, and only the context can help decide which meaning is the intended one. Thus, one way to understand 2 Nephi 26.16 might come when the common understanding of familiar is applied. That is, familiar can suggest to be acquainted with, or as the Oxford English Dictionary reads, known from constant association. This is the meaning that some church members have given to familiar in this verse. It is certainly true that the Book of Mormon will have a spirit about it that will be familiar to those who know the Bible. They will recognize the same spirit in both books. This connotation of familiar is certainly appropriate to describe the effect the Book of Mormon has on all those who are honest in heart. Now, an example of an exegetical approach. Familiar also has another meaning that is at play in Isaiah 29.4 and 2 Nephi 26.16. And because of this other sense, a different understanding of these verses becomes possible. The Hebrew behind the familiar spirit in Isaiah 29.4 is O-B, apostrophe O-B. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. This Hebrew word denotes approximately the spirit of a deceased person. 
That the familiar spirit is not always evil is apparent in 1 Samuel 28, where the spirit called up from the dead is the prophet Samuel, whether that is real or imagined. If Saul had thought that all familiar spirits were evil, he would not have ventured to have Samuel called up. Therefore, when the Bible says in Isaiah 29 and 4, that the inhabitants of Jerusalem who will be destroyed will speak out of the ground as one that hath a familiar spirit, the meaning is that destroyed Judah will speak from the dead, that is, from the records they left behind, the Old Testament, and without the aid of a medium. This has nothing to do with necromancy or divination, but everything to do with the dead speaking to the living through the records the dead leave behind. This is made even clearer in 2 Nephi 26.16, where Isaiah is paraphrased and applied to the Nephites who will, like the inhabitants of Jerusalem, be destroyed. They also shall speak out of the ground as one that hath a familiar spirit. For the Lord God will give unto him, Joseph Smith, power that he, the translator of the Nephite records, may whisper concerning the destroyed Nephites, even as it were, out of the ground, where they are buried, and where the plates had been buried. As can be seen, the reader has a choice of interpreting 2 Nephi 26 and 16, eisegetically, reading into these passages the meaning of a spirit which seems familiar, or exegetically, reading out of these passages a message from those who have passed on before us. Both ways of approaching 2 Nephi 26.16 are correct and legitimate methods that can lead to enlightenment and understanding. That's from an article by Hoskison called Familiar Spirit. Now Nephi returns to a discussion of this record and shows us that it is not available to those who have dwindled in unbelief. He says in verse 17, For thus saith the Lord God, They shall write the things which shall be done among them, and they shall be written and sealed up in a book. And those who have dwindled in unbelief shall not have them, for they seek to destroy the things of God. This seems to be a deeper interpretation of the idea that pearls would not be cast before swine, uh, because in this instance it's not simply restraint that is used on the part of someone who is um, offering gospel teachings, but it is a record who is literally unavailable to those who have unbelief. Verse 18, Wherefore, as those who have been destroyed have been destroyed speedily, and the multitude of their terrible ones shall be as chaff that passeth away, Yea, thus saith the Lord God, it shall be at an instant suddenly, and it shall come to pass that those who have dwindled in unbelief shall be smitten by the hands of the Gentiles. This smiting by the hands of the Gentiles is something that Nephi saw long ago when he recounted his view of this in his vision. Here is something very helpful from Reynolds and Sojal. The story of the invasion of America by Europeans in the 16th century is a tragic illustration of the truth of this prophecy. So they go on to discuss just how true it is that the Gentiles did smite the seed of Lehi. Witness the appearance in Mexico of Cortes with his 450 Spaniards and a 1,000 Tlaxcalan allies. From the very first of his contact with the natives, strife and slaughter ensued. Spanish cannons swept the streets with terrible effects. Some idea of the losses of the Aztecs can be formed from the fact that the battle and the retreat cost Cortes 750 of his 1,250 white soldiers and 4,000 of his 5,000 Tlaxcalan allies. But Cortes came back. On April 28, 1521, he began a siege of the city which Dr. John Fisk compares to the siege of Jerusalem by Titus, only on a smaller scale. On August 18, Cortes was master of the situation. But then the city was a ruin. A new era had been inaugurated in which the natives lost their culture, their literature and arts, and were practically buried in the dust. The first contact of the natives of Peru with the Spaniards under Pizarro and Almargaro, both of whom were finally murdered in a feud between themselves, was a duplicate of the so-called conquest of Cortes. We shall not here repeat the almost incredible stories of cruelties perpetrated on the Indians by some of the early invaders. Suffice it to say that this prophecy was literally fulfilled. The Indians everywhere sorely were sorely smitten by the hand of the Gentiles. 
Now we discover in verse 20 that the Gentiles were carriers of a great problem of their own, and that is of the doctrines and characteristics of the great and abominable church. Verse 20 says, And the Gentiles are lifted up in the pride of their eyes, and have stumbled because of the greatness of their stumbling block. And they have built up many churches. Nevertheless, they put down the power and miracles of God, and preach up unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning, that they might get gain and grind upon the face of the poor. We might think about how similar that sounds to those who built the tower called Ramiumpton in uh, Alma chapter 31. So, lest we think that the Gentiles were willing and righteous agents of God entirely, in their destruction and displacement of the seed of Lehi, it is certainly not that simple. There's something very similar that happens with the Assyrian king uh, and the way in which he destroyed Samaria or the northern kingdom of Israel. And Isaiah explained this very carefully and artfully in Second Nephi chapter 20 or Isaiah chapter 10. We learn in that chapter that the Lord is using the Assyrians as a tool, and he says it in several different ways, and then reminds the Assyrian of this, and reminds us as readers of this concept after the Assyrian uh, uh, speaks boastfully of what he has done. So this is especially apropos after reading that account of Cortez, I think. So here's what Isaiah says in verse 5 of of Isaiah chapter 10. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is their indignation. I will send him, meaning the king of Assyria, against a hypocritical nation. Now he's referring to the nation of Israel who has so thoroughly thrown away the covenant. And against the people of my wrath will I give him, meaning the king of Assyria, a charge to take the spoil and take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now, as Isaiah shows us in verse 7, the king of Assyria doesn't understand that he is a tool of the Lord, because he says in verse 7, Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so. In other words, he's not aligned with God in his motives, in his conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel. But in his heart it is to destroy and cut off nations not a few. That's what the motives are of the king of Assyria. We know this because then Isaiah says that he says, this king, are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Calno as Carchemus? Is not Hamath as Arpad? Is not Samaria as Damascus? In other words, these are all mine. As my hand hath founded the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so to do to Jerusalem and to her idols? So in his prophetic spirit, Isaiah is preempting the braggadocio uh, language and character of the king of Assyria, who I think was Sennacherib here. So then the Lord addresses this issue through Isaiah of being, at, at, in a way, at cross-purposes with the king of Assyria, but being able to use, in this instance, the king of Assyria as a tool to smite Israel. So he says in verse 12, Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and upon Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. So the king of Assyria, again, is not a righteous agent of the Lord, and he will get his due as well. And that's what we're seeing here in 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 20, as we read about the Gentiles. Then continuing with Isaiah's words in verse 13 of Isaiah chapter 10, For he saith, By the strength of my hand, so he's recounting the, the bragging language of the king of Assyria again, For the strength of my hand, and by my wisdom I have done these things, for I am prudent, and I have moved the borders of the people. Now that would be an expression of power if you could change the borders of a country. And have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. 
That's how the king of Assyria saw his role and how it was that he was able to go in and even steal the riches from the kingdom of Israel. Then Isaiah asks, Ah, but, king of Assyria, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift up itself, as if it were no wood. So it is the Lord that is working through this. And that's what Isaiah teaches us. And in learning that, we can better understand what Nephi is saying here about these Gentiles who smite the seed of Lehi. They, in many instances, are acting in their own wicked self-interest, as Cortez was. And we don't need to think of them as righteous agents of the Lord. Uh, They certainly were not in that sense. Here is some commentary from Robert J. Matthews on the term stumbling block, as Nephi uses it in verse 20. What the stumbling block is, Nephi did not say at that point, but he had used the identical language earlier to explain that the Gentiles would stumble because the Bible had been significantly altered and was thus lacking many plain and precious parts that had been taken out of it. He's referencing there 1 Nephi 13, which is Nephi's vision of the Gentiles as they come from across the many waters. And again, they are carriers, unfortunately, of the, the, the perverted doctrines. And because of that, they are agents, in a sense, of the great and abominable church. In view of Nephi's earlier explanation about plain and precious parts being taken from the Bible, we can ascertain that the Gentiles' great stumbling block in the last days would be the lack of knowledge and spiritual understanding because of their imperfect Bible, which is the only scriptural record they have ever had. Nephi wrote that in the last days, not only would the descendants of his people need to be taught the gospel and to be reclaimed from their apostasy, but that the Jews and the Gentiles would likewise need to be taught and reclaimed. He mentioned also that the record of the Nephites would have been written and sealed up, literally hidden in the ground for safekeeping. Subsequent verses show that the Nephite record, the Book of Mormon, was to be preserved untouched so as to be available for later use as a witness of what the Lord actually said. The Book of Mormon is thus spoken of in contrast to the Bible, which has suffered change at the hands of men. Nephi explained that the Gentiles in the last days would be lifted up in pride and would have stumbled because of the greatness of their stumbling block. As a result, they would have built up many churches which would lack the power of God. Then Nephi further explains the evil that these churches of the Gentiles would carry in verse 21 and 22 because, again, of their stumbling block of an imperfect word and, of course, their apostate. They don't have the power in its fullness either. Verse 21, And there are many churches built up which cause envyings, strifes, and malice. And there are also secret combinations, even as in times of old, according to the combinations of the devil. For he is the founder of all these things, yea, the founder of murder and works of darkness. Yea, and he leadeth them by the neck with a flaxen cord until he bindeth them with his strong cords forever. This phrase, secret combinations, will show in many chapters and passages in the Book of Mormon, and we'll have other opportunities to discuss it in more depth and to link it to um, teachings and incidents in other scripture as well. Carlos E. Acey said this about flaxen cords, The first wrongdoing is like a single strand of flaxen thread. It is easily broken and thrown aside, but each time the wrong is repeated, another strand is intertwined around the first, and on and on it goes until an almost unbreakable cord of multi-strands is woven. The chains of habit, said Samuel Johnson, are too small to be felt until they are too strong to be broken. Nephi's imagery, then, of a flaxen cord is so descriptive of the mechanisms of the adversary and how it is that he functions. Now, in contrast to the workings of this church, Nephi will enter a new passage where he talks about the workings of the Lord himself. And so you can see the disharmony between the nature of the Lord and his workings and this Gentile church. Verse 23, For behold, my beloved brethren, I say unto you that the Lord God worketh not in darkness. 
And now we'll learn more about the Savior's love and his desire for all uh, for whom he has suffered because he has suffered for all. And they are all his sheep and they're all numbered by him. His desire for all of them to come unto him. And as we will later read, none are forbidden. Now, verse 24, he doeth not anything save it be for the benefit of the world, for he loveth the world, even that he layeth down his own life, that he may draw all men unto him. Wherefore he commandeth none, that they shall not partake of his salvation. That, of course, at the end is a double negative, which is the same as saying that wherefore he commandeth all, that they should partake of his salvation. Elder Alexander B. Morrison once stated, Why did Jesus, the Lord God Omnipotent, who sits at the right hand of the Father, creator of worlds without number, condescend to come to earth to be born in a manger, live out most of his mortal existence in obscurity, proclaiming a message which was violently opposed by many, and finally, betrayed by one of his closest associates, die between two malefactors on Golgotha's somber hill? Nephi understood Christ's motivation— It was love for all of God's children that led Jesus to offer himself as a ransom for the sins of others. Then Nephi continues with this beautiful teaching of the Lord's desire to extend his atoning power to all. Verse 25, Behold, doth he cry to any, saying, Depart from me? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. But he saith, Come unto me, all ye ends of the earth, buy milk and honey, without money and without price. When the Savior speaks in first person from the heavens in 3 Nephi chapter 9, he says something similar, confirming Nephi's words. Yea, verily I say unto you, if ye will come unto me, ye shall have eternal life. Behold, mine arm of mercy is extended towards you, and whosoever will come, him will I receive, and blessed are those who come unto me. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland once said, perhaps no other passage in the Book of Mormon conveys more plainly the breadth of Christ's gift for all people everywhere than those which Nephi then recorded. The gift was given freely and would be denied to no one who came to partake of that mercy and salvation. And that's out of his book, Christ in the New Covenant. Then Nephi continues in verse 26, Behold, hath he commanded any that they should depart out of the synagogues or out of the houses of worship? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, Hath he commanded any that they should not partake of his salvation? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. But he hath given it free for all men, and he hath commanded his people that they should persuade all men to repentance. Behold, hath the Lord commanded any that they should not partake of his goodness? Behold, I say unto you, Nay. But all men are privileged, the one like unto the other, and none are forbidden." These expressions seem to be a natural outgrowth of the heart of a Savior who atoned for all, uh, because we know that that is the doctrine, that he shouldered the sins of all mankind. So it's natural that he would want to extend this invitation to all. Then Nephi contrasts the Lord's motives one more time with the the machinations of this Gentile church that is riddled with secret combination. He says, He commandeth that there shall be no priestcrafts. For behold, priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. The Ogden and Skinner commentary says, Satan is a master counterfeiter, an expert in cheap imitation. For example, whereas God always encourages his people to build sacred temples in which he can reveal the holiest instructions, covenants, and ordinances necessary for exaltation, Satan sponsors among the civilizations and peoples of the earth temples wherein they prostitute sacred rituals with fertility worship of false gods and goddesses. Whereas God always encourages men to take upon themselves and use his very own power, the holy priesthood, Satan comes along sponsoring priestcraft, which means that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. The early church of Jesus Christ faced this problem. It was in truth at the heart of what we sometimes call the great apostasy, the first through the 19th centuries, 
as the Apostle Paul testified, quote, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That's in Acts chapter 20. Because the Savior is the light of the world, he forbids his true followers to set themselves up for a light unto the world, just to get money and popularity, wealth and fame, and to build up their own little kingdoms instead of the kingdom of God, the cause of Zion. While traveling in the Yucatan Peninsula, the authors have spent hours scouring the ruins of the religious center of Chichen Itza, where the Kukultan, alias Quetzalcoatl, has worshipped, was worshipped. The priests certainly perverted true worship and adulterated temples. What a classic example of priestcraft. Instead of being servants of all, they set themselves above others and expected their subjects to serve them. They were adorned, as the Book of Mormon frequently notes, in luxurious apparel. Compare the high priests in the Lord's temples today. In the beginning, there were true principles and true symbols, but then came perversions. None of this would have happened had they lived one principle. The greatest of all are the servants of all. When considering how priestcraft has the potential of manifesting in our modern-day church, uh, Elder M. Russell Ballard said this in a conference address in 1999, October of 1999. Therefore, let us beware of false prophets and false teachers, both men and women who are self-appointed declarers of the doctrines of the church and who seek to spread their false gospel and attract followers by sponsoring symposia, books, and journals whose contents challenge fundamental doctrines of the church. Beware of those who speak and publish in opposition to God's true prophets and who actively proselyte others with reckless disregard for the eternal well-being of those whom they seduce. Like Nehor and Korahor in the Book of Mormon, They rely on sophistry to deceive and entice others to their views. They set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. Behold, as Nephi continues in verse 30, The Lord hath forbidden this thing. Wherefore the Lord God hath given a commandment, that all men should have charity, which charity is love. So now he's returning again to the motives of Christ as contrasted with this church. And except they should have charity, they were nothing. Wherefore, if they should have charity, they would not suffer the laborer in Zion to perish. That's a very succinct way of expressing the same thing that Paul expressed, saying that in spite of all else that you may have, if you have charity, you are nothing. Verse 31, But the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if they labor for money, they shall perish. Returning again to this condemnation of those who engage in priestcraft. Elder Oaks, from his book Pure in Heart, or now President Oaks, said we must not only do what is right, we must act for the right reasons. The modern term is good motive, The scriptures often signify this appropriate mental attitude with the words full purpose of heart or real intent. The scriptures make clear that God understands our motives and will judge our actions accordingly. If we do not act for the right reasons, our acts will not be counted for righteousness. Then he also said this uh, in a work called Gospel Teaching, President Oaks. Focusing on the needs of the students, a gospel teacher will never obscure their view of the master by standing in the way or by overshadowing the lesson with self-promotion or self-interest. This means that a gospel teacher must never indulge in priestcrafts, which are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world. A gospel teacher does not preach to become popular or for the sake of riches and honor, He or she follows the marvelous Book of Mormon example in which the preacher was no better than the hearer, neither was the teacher any better than the learner. Both will always look to the master. Now Nephi will finish this chapter with verses 32 and 33. The beginning of these verses sound similar really to the Ten Commandments, to the Mosaic Code. 
which is, in a way, a reminder that this salvation from the Savior is a two-way street. He's about to tell us again how the Savior inviteth all to come unto him and to partake of his goodness. But we can remember the the parable of the ten virgins, for example, which appropriately translated is that uh, when, when the bridegroom did not let them in, he said, You knew me not. So verse 32, And again the Lord God hath commanded that men should not murder, that they should not lie, that they should not steal, that they should not take the name of the Lord their God in vain, that they should not envy, that they should not have malice, that they should not contend one with another, that they should not commit whoredoms, that they should do no that they should do none of these things, for whoso doeth them shall perish. For none of these iniquities come of the Lord, for he doeth that which is good among the children of men, and he doeth nothing save it be plain unto the children of men, and he inviteth them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness, and he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, and he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. By this point in the record, the idea that Jew and Gentile would be gathered and saved in the end should be familiar to us. It was first proposed when we learned in Nephi's vision that the first would be last and the last would be first. But in this verse, Nephi expands upon that to help us understand the full meaning of having both Jew and Gentile saved by the Savior, and that is that all the heathen, uh, bond and free, black and white, uh, male and female, all uh, are invited to come unto him. And as he said earlier, he denieth none. And the phrase, all are alike unto God, I think is beautiful and a great comfort to all of us. There's some great modern-day commentary on this verse. President James E. Faust said, I hope we can all overcome any differences of culture, race, and language. In my experience, no race or class seems superior to any other in spirituality and faithfulness. Spiritual peace is not to be found in race or culture or nationality, but rather through our commitment to God and to the covenants and ordinances of the gospel. Elder M. Russell Ballard said, Our Father in heaven loves all of his children equally, perfectly, and infinitely. His love is no different for his daughters than for his sons. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, also loves men and women equally. His atonement and his gospel are for all of God's children. During his earthly ministry, Jesus served men and women alike. He healed both men and women, and he taught both men and women. For example, faith, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost are requirements for all of God's children, regardless of gender. This same is true of temple covenants and blessings. Our Father's work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of his children. His greatest gift, the gift of eternal life, is available to all. Now to end, here's some commentary from Ogden and Skinner on this final segment of this chapter from Nephi. They say, The final eight verses of 2 Nephi 26 constitute a running argument for God's graciousness in allowing all to come unto him. Has he denied anyone entrance to his houses of worship, even to his holy temples? Has he denied anyone the opportunity to pursue salvation or to partake of his goodness? Absolutely not, Nephi exclaimed. All men are privileged, the one like unto the other, and none are forbidden. Of course, there are stipulations and requirements to attain the blessings of heaven and the glories of his kingdom. All must repent. All must have charity. All must labor to build up Zion. And all must keep his basic laws, such as the Ten Commandments. For those willing to obey him and keep his commandments, he inviteth them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness, and he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, and he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. God does seem to have his own timetable for various peoples to be invited to come and partake of all his heavenly gifts and blessings. 
for example, the gospel to covenant Israel and then to the Gentiles, the priesthood to Aaron's family and tribe of Levi, and then to all the tribes and those adopted into covenant Israel, the gospel and priesthood blessings to all other peoples, and then to those of African descent, and the gospel and the priesthood blessings to all nations, and then to the Jews as a people. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first, clearly suggests a divine timetable for full accessibility to covenant blessings. The same blessings offered in this life or the next also presuppose a schedule based on the wisdom of God. In the Meridian Dispensation, Jesus said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. His apostles would later take the gospel to the Gentiles, and interestingly, conflict persisted for decades among God's people, especially between two great apostles, Peter and Paul, over the timing and conditions of the Gentiles coming into the covenant people. We may not presently have all the reasons for the variables in God's timing or the dispensing of his blessings, but we trust in his perfect omniscience and wisdom as to exactly when to submit the invitation. The glorious truth, however, is that all children of Heavenly Father will, sooner or later, have full opportunity to receive all the privileges and blessings the gods in heaven extend to humans on earth. Elder Dallin H. Oaks elaborated on the same concept. Proclaiming the gospel is his work, not ours, and therefore it must be done on his timing, not ours. There are nations in the world today that must hear the gospel before the Lord will come again. We know this, but we cannot force it. We must wait upon the Lord's timing. He will tell us, and he will open the doors or bring down the walls when the time is right. The Lord loves all of his children, and he desires that all have the fullness of his truth and the abundance of his blessings. He knows when groups or individuals are ready, and he wants us to hear and heed his timetable for sharing his gospel with them. The First Presidency, Ogden and Skinner continue here, declared on the 15th of February, 1978, Based upon ancient and modern revelation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gladly teaches and declares the Christian doctrine that all men and women are brothers and sisters, not only by blood relationship from common mortal progenitors, but also as literal spirit children of an eternal Father. Consistent with these truths, we believe that God has given and will give to all people sufficient knowledge to help them on their way to eternal salvation, either in this life or in the life to come. Our message, therefore, is one of special love and concern for the eternal welfare of all men and women, regardless of religious belief, race, or nationality, knowing that we are truly brothers and sisters because we are sons and daughters of the same Eternal Father. The Lord invites on His schedule, uh, that, that's the end of that First Presidency quote. And now Ogden and Skinner continue, The Lord invites on His schedule all to come unto Him, and partake of his goodness, black and white, bond and free, male and female. We might add Germans and French, Chileans and Argentines, North Koreans and South Koreans. He remembers the Africans and the North Americans, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Arab. For example, Elder Howard W. Hunter in 1979 admonished members of the Church to remember that both the Jews and the Arabs are children of our Heavenly Father. They are both children of promise, And as a church, we do not take sides. We have love for and an interest in each. The purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to bring about love, unity, and brotherhood of the highest order. Like Nephi of old, we may be able to say, I have charity for the Jew. I also have charity for the Gentiles. This brings us to the end of this segment then, and I think can show us all of this beautiful commentary and these great doctrines really gives us a glimpse, I think, into Nephi's heart and the depth of feeling that he personally had for his posterity, the posterity of Lehi, but it also extended forward to encompass all of those who were potential recipients of the Savior's wonderful grace, which he described in the previous chapter. So that brings us to the end of Second Nephi chapter 26. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. 
I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.